You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. All right. Well, the war was finally over. At least that's how it appeared. Following 10 long years of battle, the Greeks had finally given up hopes of taking the city. So they packed up their gear, swords and shields, popped them onto their ship and sailed away to go back home. And the Trojans were overjoyed. Their enemy was finally gone after a decade of fending them off. They were finally gone. The war was finally over. And so they hung up their swords. They hung up their shields. I don't know what you do with the spear. Set it to the side. Unlocked all their doors. They settled down and relaxed for once. And that night they slept well. Really well. Remarkably well. For a people who just set aside all their weaponry and all their armor, despite the fact that members of the enemy army were right there, standing ready for battle within their very gates. Some not more than five, ten feet away from them as they laid down that night to rest. But they never, never saw this enemy. Otherwise, they wouldn't have fallen asleep. They didn't know that they were there. They fell asleep that night. Some of them never woke up. That night, a handful of Greek soldiers climbed out the wooden statue of a horse and took the entire city of Troy. They had lost the war in a night. They had lost the war while they were asleep. Our unity as God's people, our Holy Spirit unity, our unity centered on Jesus as our shared surpassing treasure is, as Pastor Jonathan noted last Sunday, an embattled unity. A unity amidst opposition. And the opposition comes from without, outside our walls, opponents out there who do not love us, do not love Jesus, do not love the gospel, do not want it to spread any further than it already has. We saw such opponents last week in chapter 1, verse 28. Today, we see another form of opposition, not an opposition from without, an opposition from within, inside our walls. An opposition that comes through the sin that still dwells in each and every one of us. This sin is a danger to our unity together as God's people. God, through the Apostle Paul, is calling us today to flee from it with everything that we have got in pursuit of something far better. Far better. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, we want to be a unified people. This is not our nature We want to be a people who these words, this text is true of us. 
and there's nothing we can do on our own to make that happen. We are entirely reliant upon you in this moment to do the work which none of us can. We ask, Father, please change our hearts so that we would be a unified people that are a beauty before your eyes and a light in a dark world. We pray this in your name, amen. So our focus today is on unity. Our unity as God's people, unity amidst opposition that comes from within each and every one of us. And we're gonna work through this idea of unity in three steps. Unity directed, unity developed, and unity defended. Unity directed, unity developed, and unity defended. So first, unity directed, and this is going to actually bring us over to verse 2 of today's text. We'll get to verse 1. For now, we're looking at verse 2 of today's text, where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, one of the first things to note here is that Paul is taking a layered approach to directing these Philippians toward unity. A layered approach. He's not, in other words, directing them toward unity by way of four distinct ideas, the combination of which would produce a sort of unity. What he's actually doing is he is defining unity again and again and again and again in more or less the same way. We can see that pretty clearly with the first and the fourth phrase in this verse. Again, we're in verse two. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now look over at verse, the fourth phrase. Being of one mind. Being of the same mind, being of one mind. Tremendous overlap between the two, wouldn't you say? I mean, to be of one mind is to have the same mind. One that holds to the same truths, calls out the same lies, gives priority to the same things. Both directives point to the same main idea. Be unified. Be unified. The third phrase in this list, being in full accord, see, goes right along with this idea of be unified. Because to be in accord with someone is to be in agreement with them. They say that's true. You agree, that's true. You say that's false. They agree, that's false. They say that's worthwhile. You agree. That's worthwhile. You're in accord. You're in agreement. You are of the same mind. You're experiencing unity. Having the same love, right there, that fourth phrase, is basically right there as well. If you're in accord with someone and of one mind with them, it'd be awfully strange if you found out you had differing loves. 
fact, it'd be so strange that if you found out you had differing loves from someone else, you quickly conclude we're actually not of the same mind at all. You cannot have one and not the other. To be of the same mind means you have the same loves. To have the same loves means you are of the same mind. So Paul, in other words, is directing these Philippians four times over. Be unified, be unified, be unified, be unified. Now, Paul is a brilliant communicator. He is no slouch when it comes to writing. Repetition by him is no accident. Like, this is not just filler. Paul is intentionally repeating himself, not twice, not three times, but four times over. We want to ask, why? Why are you saying this four times over? We got it the first time. Well, he's repeating himself for the same reason you and I repeat ourselves. Emphasis. A hammering home of just how important this idea truly is. Saying this thing really matters. Like Christian unity really matters. Like you need to have it. So be unified. Be a people who though, let's be honest, in other ways are probably, we're probably very different from one another. But be a people who when it comes to the main things, who is the most important person in all the world? What is the most important thing in all the world? All of us say Jesus is the most important person in the world. The spread of God's glory is the most important, person, uh, the most important thing in all the world. We can disagree about food and sports and all that. But when it comes to those things, oh, there's no question about it. You know exactly how we are going to answer that question. Paul says, be that kind of a people. Be a unified people. Now, we might ask, okay, here's the call. Be unified. All right, we get it. But, but how? How do we get there? How, how do we get to be a unified people? Where does unity come from? And this will bring us back to verse 1. We've had unity directed. Now we're jumping back to unity developed. Where does this unity develop? Where does it come from? So look back with me at verse 1. Right away, you're going to notice we once again have a fourfold pattern. The fourfold pattern matches the fourfold pattern in verse 2. Count it with me. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, four times over. And this fourfold pattern is making up the first part of what really is just one really big if-then statement. That's what this text is. It's just one really big if-then statement. You, you guys know how if-then statements work, right? If it's sunny, the game will start at six. If it's storming, then the game will be postponed till tomorrow. We get this. If then, if then, all right? We actually just worked through all the thens. That was verse two. Now we're saying, what are the ifs? Okay. 
if you look at the thens, all four of them are hammering home the same idea. We're going to find the same thing with all the ifs. All the ifs are hammering home the same main idea, and this is what I think it is. Are you ready? This is verse one. This is the ifs. If you are experiencing the grace of being a Christian. Verse two, Paul is hammering home, be unified. It's four times over call. Verse one, I think it's this. If you are experiencing the grace of being a Christian. That's the if. Let me show you how I got that. Look at verse one, look at that phrase, any participation in the spirit. See with me, go to verse one, see with me. Any participation in the spirit. You guys got it? It's the third phrase there in verse one. And we're going there because some of the other phrases are a bit ambiguous, a bit vague, but this one is clear. So we're gonna start there. Any participation in the spirit. Well, we've already seen standing firm in one spirit. So this idea of spirit has already come up. Standing firm in one spirit. Here we have participation in the spirit. Also also translated fellowship in the spirit. So if you have fellowship in the spirit, participation in the spirit. And the thing to know right away without doubt concerning participation in the spirit or fellowship in the spirit. The thing to know about it is no one has it apart from being a Christian. No one on the face of this earth has any participation in the spirit, any fellowship with spirit apart from being a Christian. Jesus says it this way. Speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, even the Spirit of truth. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit, okay? Now know what he says about it. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world, non-Christians, they cannot receive the Spirit, because They don't see him. They don't know him. So Paul, if he's saying, listen, if you have participation in the spirit, guess what that says about you? You're a Christian. You're experiencing the grace of being a Christian. Set that main idea over to the other phrases in this verse and see if it works, okay? So, If there is any encouragement in Christ, well, who are those who've received encouragement in Christ? Those who are in Christ. Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, uh, Jesus says, uh, the New Testament will say, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. There's no encouragement for you in Christ if you don't have Christ. For Paul to say, do you have encouragement in Christ? 
Another way he could ask that same question, he could say, are you experiencing the grace of being a Christian? Keep going down the list. Any comfort from love? This comes from the same man who wrote, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Do you have comfort, comfort from love? Comfort from love is experienced by those who know God, those who are Christians. Lastly, affection and sympathy. We could ask what affection? That's kind of broad, right? Any affection. Well, look back in chapter one, verse eight. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Who are those who have the affection of Christ Jesus? Those who are in Christ, those who are Christians. So Paul's main idea, let me draw you, in back, draw you back in, okay? If, you, if you're lost here, come, come on back. Paul's main idea here is if you are experiencing the grace of being a Christian, In other words, unity is developed within God's people who together experience the grace of being God's people. It's an experience we share with one another. So Paul says, here's the if then. If you are experiencing the grace of being a Christian, then be unified. That's just verse one and two. If you are experiencing the grace of being a Christian, be unified as Christians. That's verse one and two. And now he's gonna say, and one way to do that, one way to be unified as a Christian people is by defending the unity that we have from the sin that still dwells in each one of us. From our sin that threatens from within the unity that we have as a people. Unity defended. Let's look at verse three. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. This, my brothers and sisters, this is the two-headed monster lurking within every one of us. Selfish ambition and conceit. Both are a threat to our unity as God's people. Both are a real live threat that must not be coddled, must not be kept, but crushed beneath the bottom of every single one of our feet. That's why Paul says, do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We could ask, well, what after all is Selfish ambition, simply this, 
Selfish ambition is that thing in all of us that says, I gotta get mine. That's selfish ambition. Simply put, selfish ambition is that thing in you that says, I gotta get mine. And we've actually seen it once already in this very book. Chapter one, talking about the people who are preaching Christ, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul and his imprisonment, it says they're doing so motivated by what? Selfish ambition. Now we're seeing it again, this time alongside one of its strongest allies, conceit. And if selfish ambition says, I got to get mine, conceit says, because mine is most important. Because I am most important. Selfish ambition says, I got to get mine. And conceit chimes in, because after all, mine is most important. Because I'm most important. Together, these two, selfish ambition and conceit, take aim against our being of the same mind, our being of the same love. They'd like our full accord to get all twisted up into no accord or discord. Selfish ambition and conceit join hands with such friends as quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, and disorder. In fact, James says this specifically of selfish ambition. It's a sweeping statement from James. He says that wherever you find selfish ambition, there you will also find disorder and every vile practice. We don't want that in our church. For that reason, again, Paul warns my brothers and sisters, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. No, Paul could have just said, count others more significant than yourself. He could have just given the action. But you note, he gave the manner as well. He didn't just say, count others more significant. He said, in humility, count others more significant. The manner matters. In fact, the manner matters so much that if you get the manner wrong, the action is wrong. Selfish ambition, after all, is not an action. Selfish ambition is also a manner. In fact, I think there's a way we could, driven not by humility, but selfish ambition, I think there's a way we could actually, because of selfish ambition, count others more significant than ourselves. After all, you do that for a while, now this person's in your debt. Now it's their job. Now it's their time to bring me up. 
Well, that's just selfish ambition all over again, isn't it? See, the manner matters. Paul says, in humility do this. It's essential. The manner is essential in humility. So we want to ask, okay, well, what's, what's humility? We, we know that word, but, but what really is it? Here's a definition offered by uh, Miriam Webster. I don't know. That's, I assume that's two people. Miriam Webster. Miriam Dash Webster. I don't know. Uh, Miriam Webster offers a definition saying this. Humility is freedom from pride or arrogance. Freedom from pride or arrogance. And I believe that's true as far as that definition can take us. Humility is freeing. It frees us from from pride. It frees us from arrogance. It frees us from the terrors of selfish ambition. Okay, sure. Is that enough? C.S. Lewis takes another crack at it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I think that's good. Humility is not thinking you're worthless, thinking you're a worm, because guess what? Then you're still thinking about yourself. Your focus is still on you. So C.S. Lewis says, no, 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 no. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. Again, I, I think that's good. But so far, what we have is this. Humility is not pride. Okay, it's freedom from pride. Okay, good. Humility involves a focus away from self. Okay, good. So, hey, don't focus on pride, don't focus on self. Okay, so then what is humility? It's probably focusing on others, right? Humility is focusing on others. Let me tell you what what would happen if I started focusing on others and that's all I did. Like literally all I did was stop focusing on self, start focusing on others. This is how it would go. Wow. They're kind of intimidating. They look impressive. I wonder what I need to do to get their approval. I wonder what I need to do in order to get their respect. I, need, I wonder what I need to do in order to not be embarrassed in front of them. Is that humility? It's selfish ambition. I have an ambition to be high in front of them to be mighty in front of them, to be strong in front of them. A selfish ambition. So humility, we could say, it includes a freedom from pride, okay? It includes a turning away from self, but it needs to be so much more than that to be true humility. So let me suggest a definition given by Pastor John Piper. And he gave this during a BCS chapel message about two years ago. And guys, I, I accidentally went to this chapel. Uh, I actually didn't know BCS had chapel. It makes sense now that I think of it. Yeah, of course. But uh, I was just going there for the bookstore. 
And I told the guy at the bookstore, I said, man, the parking lot is packed. He said, yeah, it's probably because Piper's giving the lecture in about two minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I quickly went over there. Well, that chapel that day was on humility. Uh, John Piper uh, teaching on humility, and he gave a definition of humility that goes like this. I'm going to give it a couple times over because it's, it's, it's got some length to it. All right, here's what it is. Humility is the disposition of the heart to be pleased with the infinite superiority of Christ over us in every way. It's a mouthful. Let me say it one more time. Humility, it's the disposition of the heart. So how our heart is set. The disposition of the heart to be pleased, to be happy with the infinite superiority of Christ over us and in every way. And I really like this definition for two reasons. First, it puts our focus on Christ, the only being beautiful and great enough to render our pride and selfish ambition complete foolishness. Both our pride and our selfish ambition just burn up in the atmosphere of who Jesus is. Second, I like this definition because it says of Christ's superior, superiority that we take pleasure in it. Like we don't just see it. The world's going to see Jesus' superiority. Many of them won't like it. Many of them won't be pleased by it. But we see Jesus' superiority. Man, it just makes us happy. Like we just love it. We love seeing Jesus big and mighty and beautiful because when we see him, see, he's not just some Christ. He's our Christ. He's not just some savior. That's, that's our savior. He's not just some king. He's, he's our king. We see him and say, I know him. I love him. He's the one that died for me. Call me his very own. I love seeing him high and mighty. We say, Christ, Keep being big. Keep being bright. Blaze like a billion suns in the sky. And then blaze brighter and brighter. It only makes us happy to see Christ in his glory. Now tell me that a person could turn from that and even moments later say, all right, now time for me to get mine. The truth is you don't have to tell me because I already know a person could do such a thing because I've done it. I've seen Christ's glory walked away and still had that whisper, time for me to get mine. Perhaps you've been there as well. See, we still got this part of us this old self, this old man that Paul says, which never stops whispering, hey, it's time for you to get yours. Okay, you got other people passing you by. They're getting all the things. They're getting all the stuff. If you don't get moving, it's all going to be gone by the time you get there. We think, oh, okay, all right, we got we to do it. We got we to we get aggressive here, get focused. But if we could just keep our eyes 
on Jesus' glory, the thing that truly makes us happy, if we could just keep our eyes there, even if the whisper is just kind of going away, chattering away, we, we eventually start to turn to that whisper and say, hey, you know what? I, I think there's been some sort of mistake here. Like, I, I think you're confusing me with somebody else. Or perhaps just somebody else I used to be. See, see I'm a Christian now. I don't, I don't got to get mine anymore. I'm a Christian now. On the day I became one, God's word tells me that all of heaven with all its angels rejoiced in joy over me. My father is the king of heaven. And he calls me son because that's what I am. God tells me he knew my name before I was ever even born. He wrote it out for me in his book of life. He formed my inward being. He's counted the hairs upon my head. He knows just how many days I have left before I get to go home. And when I go home, oh, when I go home, I will get to see Jesus face to face. He'll wipe away every tear from my eye. Death shall cling to me no more. Jesus will bring me to my room, the one he's made just for me. But he'll say, don't settle in just yet because there's a feast at my table. And the feast will not start until you sit down at your spot. He says, from now until that moment, my treasure in heaven will be kept imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. My faith in Jesus will remain secure, for the Lord intercedes for me, as does the Spirit before the Father. God himself has promised me that nothing shall be able to separate me from his love, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor even my incessant whispering voice of selfish ambition, saying, I got to get mine. No, not even that. Not even that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And though there's more we could say to our little whispering voice of selfish ambition, I believe what has already been said has rendered all sense of our getting ours completely obsolete. Scraps, you hear me? Scraps compared to what God has in store for us as his people. No, no, we don't need to get ours in this world, but what we do get is the opportunity, one remarkable opportunity to look to the interests of others with a peculiar form of intrigue that asks, how how might that man, how might that woman be brought to enjoy Jesus more fully, to see heaven more clearly, to praise God more gladly, to believe God more steadfastly, to pray to God more fervently, to serve God more joyfully, to be even more compelled to live even more in accord to the reality of God. And how, 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 how might he use me? even me to help get them there. What a thrilling way to live. No one who lives that way is bored. 
a way that both defends the unity that we have together as a people and gives us a front row seat to all that God is doing in this world. What a way to live, my brothers and sisters. And this is the way that God calls us to live today. So I wanna close, I wanna close with four points of application. Four points of application. The first two will come in association with verse three. The last two will be more in association with verse four. Here they go. Point one, point one. In humility, count others more significant by remembering whose blood was spilled for them. In humility, count others more significant by remembering whose blood it was that was spilled for them. Okay, we're talking about other Christians here. This is, this is Christian to Christian unity, right? We're talking about unity in our church. And you're endeavoring to look at other Christians less through the lens of what does that person do for a living? How impressive is that person? What is their personality like? I wonder where they live. No, 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 we're looking them through, through the lens that mainly says, can you believe whose blood was spilled for them? Wow. Jesus' blood was spilled for them. How significant of a person this must be. How significant to all of heaven must this person be that Jesus' blood was spilled for them. In humility, count others more significant by remembering whose blood was spilled for them. Second, in humility, consider how much God desires to bring that person all the way home. In humility, consider how much God desires to bring that person in front of you that person to the right of you, to the left of you, all the way home. God is, right now, for the person next to you, if they are a believer, assuming they are, God is right now working all things together for the good of that person. God has predestined that person. God has called that person. God has justified that person. God will glorify that person. This is one of God's sheep God loses none of his sheep. No one tears them out of his hand. They are the apple of his eye. They might not look all that amazing to you. They might have some areas they need to grow in. But God will get them home. My question is how will he use you as one means to get that person home? Our third. Two more guys, hang with me. In humility... Look not only to your own interests, but also to others by praying for them. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others by praying for them. Paul, as we've already seen all through chapter one, Paul prays for these Philippians. He uses his energy that he could have used for other things. He uses his mental capacity that he could have used for other things. He spends it upon them on his knees in prayer. How might you use the energy that you have, the time that you have on your knees to pray 
not only for your own good, but to pray for the good of your brothers and sisters as well. Last point. In humility, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others by showing up. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others by showing up. Brothers and sisters, be there for your church family. Don't underestimate how your presence might encourage your church family. You're simply being there. You're tired during the week. You got a community group in in the evening. Consider their interests and go. Be there for them. You wake up Sunday morning, you're stressed, you got a lot of work still to do. Go to be with your church family. Consider their interests. Be there for them. Bless your church by showing up. You get a phone call late at night. Man, you just want to go to bed. Answer the phone. Be there for them. Consider their interests. All these words, considering others' interests, doing these things in humility, all of these are what now brings us to the table. Because it's at this table we're reminded of how Jesus spilled his blood for us. It symbolized every Sunday when we drink the cup. At this table we're reminded how Jesus left heaven took on human flesh so that he might dwell among us and have his body broken for us. Symbolized every Sunday when we eat the bread. It's at this table where we remember, we celebrate that Jesus has come and he has given himself. He's given himself sacrificially for the good of his people. And so if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus, then we invite you to take and eat with us If you've not put your trust in Jesus, then please let the elements pass you by. But we pray in this moment that you would draw near and receive Jesus for the first time by faith. I'll invite the pastors to come forward. We'll distribute the bread first. It's all gluten-free. You'll take it. You'll hold on to it. I'll come back and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.